You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Welcome all to this episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm going to be your host this week. I'm David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. With me this week is Matthew Block up in Swan River, Manitoba. How are you, sir? I'm doing all right. Uh, Preparing for a white Christmas. We just had a major snowfall last night and today, so (laughs) expecting somewhere between six and ten inches of snow. So it's a nice day. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, today it's supposed to get up to the high 80s where I'm at. So, yeah. Are you splitting the distance uh, or the difference, Michael Farmer in Sandy Springs, Georgia? I am, Grubbs, but I'm closer to you than to Matthew, although I wish our weather was more like his and less like yours. <laughs> um, so does everyone in Houston. Uh, there, there are a few people here who actually like this climate, um, but, but not nearly enough to keep the city going. (laughs) Well, what's going on on the network and what's not on the calendar? Well, you know, uh, unusually we have a sectarian review on the calendar for Thursday. It's his interview with, um... (laughs) With the editor of that Abraham Joshua Heschel uh, volume from Plow that I I mentioned a few weeks ago, Danny was probably also going to talk to. Uh, and then there's a uh, there's an episode of Christian Feminist podcast uh, on Friday, and this is the Thursday and Friday before you're hearing this, the Thursday and Friday after I'm speaking it, on the poet I think Louisa Hall, I think she's a poet. I don't know. All I have is the title. Okay. <laughs> so whoever Louisa Hall yes. is. All right. Very cool. Well, uh, this week uh, we're sort of going back to um, ye merry oldie Englandy, um, Anglo-Saxon England and the history of the church in England by the venerable Bede and talking about a cluster of stories that includes some of the best-known Tales from Bede. If one knows from Tales from Bede, odds are it's one from this chunk of of accounts. And they circle around the conversion of King Edwin of Northumbria, his conversion to Christianity, and then him leading uh, his kingdom in accepting Christianity as well. So before we dive into this particular moment in the spread of spread of Christianity in England, uh, Matthew, could you give us kind of a thumbnail sketch of how Christianity arrived among the Anglo-Saxons, who brought them the gospel, and why it had to be brought at all? Because I thought there were already Christians in Britain. 
That's a good question. I mean, anyone who's familiar with the story of St. Patrick knows that he was ordained in Britain before going to Ireland as a missionary. And his story takes place a good 150 years before the, the story we're looking at today. So what happened in the meantime? I think the simple answer is the fall of the Roman Empire. With apologies to William Blake, the feet of Jesus probably did not walk upon England's mountains green in ancient times. Instead, of course, Christianity was introduced to Britain as a result of the expansion of the Roman Empire. Britannia had become a province of Rome about 10 years after the crucifixion of Christ and uh, continued to be a province of Rome for about 400 years, almost. Uh, during that time, you had movement of soldiers and traders along the Roman roads, which made it possible for Christianity to come to Britain in the first place. So by 200 AD, Tertullian is already talking about an established Christian presence in Britain. But as the empire began to shrink, the Romans eventually withdrew from Britain in 412. And so the next few hundred years, we see the widespread immigration of Angles, Saxons and Jutes. Uh, these are these Germanic tribes that are coming to Britain. And while Christianity does survive among Britons in the West or, or some Britons in the West, uh, it, it kind of loses its connection institutionally with with continental Europe. And uh, at the same time where the Germanic tribes are establishing their kingdoms in the East, uh, they're bringing with them their own pagan religions, which supplant Christianity in the region. So the Christian Britons um, who remain, they don't seem particularly eager to to evangelize these, new, new, these newcomers either for various reasons. So around the late 6th century, then, Pope Gregory decides to reestablish mission work in Britain among the Germanic tribes. And Bede tells us this story in which Gregory, um, he's not a pope at this time, but apparently he sees some slave boys for sale in the market and they have this, this beautiful fair hair. And he asks what people they were, and he's told that they're angles. And Gregory, of course, makes a pun on the word angles, calling them angels instead, and resolves to seek the conversion of these English people. And regardless of the truth of that story, Pope Gregory does indeed uh, establish this uh, mission to Britain, and he sends Augustine, Paulinus, and others as missionaries. That's not, obviously, it's not Augustine of Hippo, this will be Augustine of Canterbury. Um, so they travel to the kingdom of Kent, where King Ethelbert and many of his subjects uh, subsequently do convert to Christianity, and from there, Christianity really has this base to expand to the rest of pagan Anglo-Saxon England. Um, Augustine and this new church do end up at loggerheads with the with the native British Christians to the west, um, and that division would continue for quite a while. I mean, it's it's still present in Bede's time. Um, so, but at the time of the story we're reading today, then we we really have two competing forms of Christianity in Britain. Uh, but it's only now that the Anglo-Saxons are really being evangelized directly. Excellent. Um, I, I like the, uh, the the addition of the 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 story of the the boys in the market and, and Gregory's punning. Um, <laughs> probably probably one day after I've uh, after I've decided that I can um, make our audiences endure some more bead, um, I'll come back to that one. That'd be fun. Well, Michael, our story begins uh, with what first impels King Edwin to consider Christianity, and that is marriage. 
specifically marriage to a Christian Kentish princess with an adorable nickname. Um, missionary dating was decried in my youth, uh, but tell us about this peculiar arrangement, which apparently had the Pope's approval. Worth pointing out, I don't think the Pope gave his approval for it until after the marriage had taken place. It's not like <laughs> it's not like Pope Boniface is pushing um, pushing for this marriage to take place. But once it happens, he uh, he he sees some good in it. Uh, the king's wife was named Ethel Barga, who, and her nickname uh, is Tata, which apparently did not carry the same slang meaning in the 7th century that it does today. I'm not sure that adorable is the first place I would go with the nickname Tata. <laughs> no, that's that, that has that has no. What is it? Where does that name come from, David? Um, I think it's just a diminutive of one of the elements in her, in, in her name. Um, but, but B, B just says that it's, it's an affectionate nickname. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that. I didn't know if it meant something in old English or, or what? Um, I don't think so. I think, I think it's just kind of a, a, a diminutive, I mean, in the, in the same kind of nonsense way that we might refer to someone as pumpkin and it be like sweet. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing about pumpkins. <laughs> In life that arouses my uh, arouses my affection, I don't look at a pumpkin in the wild and go, ah, there is an adorable thing. Do you know what they say in French instead of pumpkin, David? No. They say mon chou, which means my cabbage. <laughs> so, <laughs> my little cabbage. I think you'll agree. I think you'll agree that uh, pumpkin is sweeter than cabbage. Anyway, uh, so Ethel Berga, Edwin wants to marry her in order to strengthen his political alliance with the Kentish. But the king of Kent says that he's not going to give his daughter, Ethelbarga, to a pagan. And so Edwin's response is that he wouldn't keep Ethelbarga from being a Christian herself. And also he'd be willing to look into the Christian faith or at least to have his advisors uh, do so for him, which seems like a pretty half-hearted response to me but it also does demonstrate his the the hierarchy of his kingdom we're going to find out later that the whole country converts because the king does so it makes sense that he would give the responsibility for looking into christianity to his advisors rather than taking the time to do it himself anyway the king of kent must have been convinced because he agreed to the marriage after edwin made that promise so Maybe Edwin's not going to convert himself, but he's not going to keep Ethelbarga from uh, practicing Christianity, and so the alliance moves forward. And Ethelbarga is sent to Northumbria along with Bishop Paulinus, who is there to keep her from being corrupted by the heathens, and also, of course, to offer offer her the sacraments that she otherwise wouldn't be able to get, right? Because only a priest, only an ordained priest, can, uh, can, can perform the Eucharist, for example. Um, which she would obviously want to take on a regular basis. For a while, uh, a kind of household pluralism reigns uh, in Northumbria, but uh, when their baby is born, Edwin praises the heathen gods and Paulinus praises the Christian gods. And actually that baby is the first Northumbrian to be baptized. Um, so in, in a real sense, that's the first Northumbrian Christian is this baby that was born into a split pagan Christian household and, and is allowed to be baptized for reasons that we'll talk about in a little while. 
Pope Boniface V writes a letter to Ethelberga, and and I should point out, as Augustine of Canterbury is not to be confused with Augustine of Hippo, so Pope Boniface V is not to be confused with Pope Boniface VI, whose election in 896 was declared invalid, or Pope Boniface VII, who's now considered an anti-pope, or most infamously, <laughs> Pope Boniface VIII, whom Dante puts into hell for selling the holy things of the church. Pope Boniface V is a good pope who did a lot for the Christianization of England. Maybe the last good Boniface. I don't know if there's one after Pope Boniface VIII or not, uh, because that's the Pope Boniface I was familiar with and wanted to make sure that it wasn't the same guy. It's not. Yep. Boniface tells her about, quote, God's goodness in granting you through your own profession of faith an opportunity to kindle the spark of the true religion in your husband, for in this way he will more swiftly inspire not only the mind of your illustrious consort for, to love of him, but the minds of your subjects as well. And in his way, Pope Boniface is just following the advice that Peter gives in 1 Peter, where he says, Wives, in the same way, accept the authority of your husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by their wives' conduct when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So, um, you know, Pope Boniface isn't departing hugely from Christian tradition in giving Ethelberga this advice. What he adds to St. Peter is the responsibility of the Christian in a non-Christian country. So it's not just that by living like a Christian, she's going to be able to convert her husband. It's that she's going to convert everybody in the country, especially because she's in this position of power. So she has a, a really um, immense responsibility laid on her because of the position of relative authority that she's found herself in. And Pope Boniface writes to her to um, to remind her of that. David, I'm sure that I'm missing all the nuances of uh, of 7th century English Christianity. So you uh, you fill in those gaps. So some of the nuances that would uh, that would help kind of unpack some of the situation. Um, first is the relative power of the Kentish kingdom with, uh, North, with, uh, Edwin's Northumbria. Uh, as Bede tells the story, Edwin is consolidating his rule over some pretty big region, uh, regions in, uh, that Northern, uh, part of England, um, directly controlling a, a pretty broad territory and having uh, gained sort of overlordship over uh, some other kingdoms, including uh, some kingdoms of, of Britons. So not, not every, every uh, other king or lord who um, has sworn loyalty to Edwin is actually even uh, an angle. So, so Edwin, Edwin's, Edwin's in a pretty strong position you know, that uh, Ethelberga's father is content with, I won't prevent her from worshiping the way she likes, and I'll give it due consideration that he's content with that, may have something to do with the relative strength of their kingdoms. Um, another reason for that is it's one of the reasons why the the Kentish king who first is receptive of the first the first missionaries that Gregory sends 
One of the reasons he's so receptive is that his own queen is a Frankish princess who brought her own bishop with her. <laughs> so um, it's a family tradition. Yeah, yeah, it's a family tradition. So maybe Ethelberg's dad is like, I mean, I can't really complain too much, I guess. Um, but but that uh, marriage alliance between royal families then becoming a a route into um, religious conversion is something that happens uh, at an at an earlier and similarly important point in in Bede. Um, I really like that he sent that that Boniface the fifth sent her a letter. I I, I just think that's um, I think it's it, it's it's nice. Uh, we do have pretty good reason to I think believe that that when Bede presents these letters uh, that they that they are authentic. He does talk um, about doing what he can to get access to uh, the official documents that are supporting his story. And um, you better believe that if I was a king who got a letter from the Pope of Rome, that I would, um, I'd keep it. So, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe you would, um, unless you were a pagan who thought that Christianity was a bunch of bunk. Well, that's true. I mean, we may not have those letters. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it never occurred to me to doubt the veracity of that letter because it's so specifically written. Yes. Maybe yeah. I maybe I should be more cynical. Well, I mean, there are some who come to bead with a certain degree of default cynicism because he tells stories of miracles. But, you know, uh, that that's that's I guess that's a tale for another day. Um, I want to clarify one one thing here. Um, I think the king at this time is not actually Ethelberger's father. It's her brother. Um, yeah, that's right. Leonbald. That's right. Yeah. But uh, and I think you, you mentioned kind of, you know, Bertha, the, the husband, uh, pardon me, the wife of of Ethelbert. Her influence kind of sets the stage for the the missionaries that Pope Gregory sends in the first place, because they're received in Kent as well. And without kind of that, I think, initial work of Bertha and her bishop, um, maybe maybe they wouldn't have gotten such a kind reception in Kent. Right. Yeah, you're right. It it is it is uh, Ethelberga's brother who is, though he is functioning as male head of household who actually does have the um uh what's it what's it called he he, he can he can veto this <laughs> oh yeah mm -hmm. I, I do think there's one lesson we should really take away from this and that's if that christian people should free should be feel free to marry unbelievers if they can get a promise from their spouse to seriously consider to the faith and to permission from their spouse to, spouse to move a priest in with them. So as long as they can do that. <laughs> oh, man. You just raised the bar. <laughs> awesome. Well, I, I, I would not consider this the biblical optimal, the biblical optimum choice. But um, it is it is a circumstance that God's that God used. So, uh, also, yeah. I just I wonder I don't I don't know enough about um, about marriage customs among the people that Paul is writing to when he says don't be unequally yoked with non-believers. 
this was not a love marriage. You, you know, this is right. a, this is a political alliance, and so in, that seems different to me than marrying for love. But I don't know if common people in ancient Rome would have married for love either. So I don't I don't have a sense I don't have a sense of how applicable um, those two situations are. Yeah, I mean, the the sense that I get in the New Testament is that in a lot of cases you have, um, or in, in the cases where a, an apostolic writer is addressing um, a marriage where one partner is a Christian and the other partner is not, um, you know, it may be that a Christian married someone who was not a Christian, but it could be, and particularly in that early generation, equally and probably more likely that someone had converted to Christianity having already been married, um, especially given how young people married um, in, in the world of, of uh, the Roman world of, of the first century. Um, particularly the, you know, my, my impression seems to be that the more uh, high class you were, and I'm, I'm open for correction from classicists on this, but it seems to be the more the more important and prominent your family, the more likely it was that a marriage would be arranged or maybe even uh, officiated um, when you were very young, especially if you were a young woman. Yeah, that's that's my impression too. So, you know that 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 means that there's a, a, potentially an awful lot of especially women who might be encountering the gospel, um, you know, becoming sort of old enough, wise enough to sort of consider those, you know, the message of the gospel. Um, but marriage already happened to them, you know, basically at puberty in some cases. So, yeah. Um, well, Pope Boniface isn't just writing letters to King Edmund's uh, or King Edwin's wife. Uh, he's also writing letters to Edwin himself. So um, this isn't some kind of like creepy on the down low thing. Um, what sorts of apologetic arguments, Matthew, is Edwin making to convert King Edwin from his ancestral English religion? And what sort of echoes of prophetic or apostolic or patristic writings do you hear in this epistle? I think it's noteworthy that Pope Boniface early on in his letter refers to God as the one who made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Um, that's a, a title for God that recurs several times in scripture, but I think one of them is is particularly important for our purposes here. Um, in Acts 14, uh, that's where St. Paul and St. Barnabas are mistaken for pagan gods, and they have to prevent the people from sacrificing and worshipping to them. Um, so they say, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. That idea, inviting people to turn away from false gods, vain things, um, to the true God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Uh, that's really the central tenet of Boniface's letter to Edwin. As he goes about that, he, he has a couple of um, specific kind of apologetic points. Um, the first thing I, I might mention is that uh, there's an emphasis on, on the Trinity that might be surprising uh, to readers today. 
um, we see a lot of emphasis on the Trinity, but not a lot of discussion of the sacrifice of Christ. And I'm not sure if that demonstrates a knowledge of old English virtues of of uh, masculinity. Um, this idea that uh, Boniface is emphasizing the might of God uh, in this text rather than focusing on Jesus's suffering at the cross. In fact, the cross and, and the blood of Christ aren't mentioned in this letter. They do show up in in the letter uh, to Edwin's wife, but they don't show up here. Um, and we do learn a little later on that Paulinus did have trouble convincing Edwin specifically uh, to accept the humility of the way of salvation and the mystery of the life-giving cross. So these were stumbling blocks, not only uh, uh, to those in, in Paul's time in scripture, but also clearly to the old English. Um, I, I think that might be one of the reasons why Boniface does emphasize God's kingship in this text and his ability to confer kingship on others. Obviously, that's something that's going to be important to Edwin. Um, and we should also probably understand the reference to uh, Eadbald, King of Kent, about how he had recently converted from paganism to Christianity as well. Um, if he converted, why shouldn't you? After all, Kent is a fairly prosperous uh, kingdom at this point, not as prosperous as in his father's time, but still um, influential. And uh, yeah, so I, I think it's also noteworthy then that later on, again, just before Edwin does convert, uh, Paulinus is again stressing the emphasis on the kingdom which God had raised him to and the promise of the eternal kingdom in heaven. So there's a lot about um, earthly ruling, but also the promise of, of heaven, uh, the kingdom of heaven. But those are just some kind of tangential points. The real primary argument that Boniface is using here to try to convince Edwin to convert is a discussion of idols. And so he's quoting uh, Psalm 115, um, which says, you know, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but don't speak, eyes, but don't see, ears, but don't hear, noses, but don't smell. They have hands, but can't feel, feet, but can't walk, and they don't, they can't speak. Uh, those who make them, the psalmist says, become like them. So do all who trust them. So what Boniface is, is alluding to is this idea, idea that idols instead of being the God who makes creation, are themselves the creations of mere men. How can they have power to help you, Boniface asks. Unless you move them, they can't move. They have no power to hurt or help, he asserts. And he even says that you can prove this uh, experientially. He says, overthrow and destroy these artificial gods of your own making, and the very destruction of these things will itself afford you clear evidence of the nothingness of these objects. So if you destroy them, they won't defend themselves. And if they can't even defend themselves, what good are they? What good are they to you? This kind of approach to looking at idols as man-made and as without power is a repeated theme in scripture. I mean, you get Dagon falling down before the Ark of the Covenant. You get the idol of Baal, which is silent to the cries of his prophets. Um, the Psalms are replete with references to idols having no power. Isaiah repeatedly castigates idols as useless, um, castigating those who um, bow down to the work of the hands, to what their own fingers have made, is what he says. And Paul, of course, in Acts, coming back to Acts, uh, does the same kind of things. In fact, in Ephesus, 
the idol makers actually stir up a riot because they're afraid Paul is, is actually convincing the people that man-made idols have no power. Um, and so this is, it's true in the Old Testament, it's true in the New Testament, it's true in, in the era of the early church, in the patristic era. Um, there's a, a very notable, I think, passage in the Epistle to Diognetus, for example, which is literally titled The Stupidity of Idols. That's the section title. <laughs> and he, he writes, uh, is not one a stone like the stones we walk on and another bronze, no better than the utensils that we have forged for our use? Here is a wooden one already rotting away and one made of silver that needs a watchman to protect it from being stolen. Yet another one is made of iron eaten by rust and another of pottery, no more attractive than something provided for the most ignoble purpose. And just a martyr has some similar comments about idols being lifeless and dead. But but the point is that uh, this theme uh, of just highlighting how idols don't do anything, how you have to make them, how how they are just the work of of your of a man's hands. How can they be trusted to help you or save you? It's the kind of thing that Christians throughout time have have drawn attention to. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of I think the, the the primary points he's getting to in his letter. Uh, although if there are some additional comments uh, that you see there, I'd be interested to hear them. Yeah, those are those are exactly the things uh, that that I would highlight in this in this particular case. Um, he does mention taking the sign of the Holy Cross by which the human race is redeemed. But it's not in any way unpacked, and what that uh, what that does is to root out of your hearts the deceitfulness of the snares of the devil, who is ever the jealous foe of the works of the divine goodness. Um, it's not just that God is king; it's that God also has this foe who sets snares for him. And as we work through the uh, as we work through the the story of of Edwin, we find out that. He also, as king, had been beset by those who who sought to untrap him or to undo his works, and in some cases even threaten his life. Um, that idea that uh, God as king also has those who oppose his rule, his rightful rule, um, you know, would would even be more strengthening that that kind of um, sort of tacit argument that as a king you expect certain certain rights you expect your subjects to treat you in a certain way you have a certain attitude towards your uh towards your enemies and those who oppose your rule and why would not why would you not think that god is similar as 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 king of the universe ought you not to take his side and not the side of his enemy <laughs> and so forth um you know the the nobility of of Edwin's descent gets relativized. I thought this was interesting. God has appointed you to be descended after many ages and, th and through many generations from the first man whom he formed. Um, that nobility of royal birth. Yes, it's there. You are descended from the first man, as is everyone else. <laughs> um so it's yes, you have a, a high and noble birth, but uh, it's a high and noble birth shared by others. Not much is made of that point, but uh, it will be interesting later in the Middle Ages when people reflect on um, 
what uh, a common descent of humanity um, implies about an, arist an aristocratic um, society uh, based on noble bloodlines. Well, there's also a transactional, um, even a, a strongly political side to King Edwin's conversion that has to be faced, um, even by me, who uh, I'm the biggest of the bead fans, but uh, there are certainly things in this, uh, in this story that give me pause. So, Michael, um, what does Edwin expect to get out of converting in practical terms and since Bede doesn't censure this side of the story, um, would you, is there any good in it that you that you think he might be um, having us see here? Let me tell the story first. In 626, an assassin is sent by the West Saxons to kill Edwin and to take his land. And this happens on the auspicious date of Easter. I don't know if that makes it more or less believable that it happens, but um, there you go. The assassin comes after Edwin with his dagger, which has been um, poisoned. So just in, just in case he doesn't stab him hard enough, the idea is he's going to die from the poison. His thane, uh, Edwin's thane, Lilla, actually throws himself between the assassin and the king. But the assassin stabs him so hard that he goes through the thane's body and uh, wounds King Edwin. Um, and Oof. the assassin is killed, of course. <laughs> Immediately, I'm sure. Um, this is the same day that the king's baby is born. So when Paulinus praises God, as I said he did a, uh, a few minutes ago, Edwin tells him that if God will protect him from the West Saxons and allow him to defeat the West Saxons, he will convert to Christianity. And that's also why he allows the baby to be baptized. Um, so as you say, there's a, there's a transactional element to it. Now, as it turns out, the king does defeat the West Saxons, and he gives up idol worship when he gets back to Northumbria after doing this. But he refuses to be baptized until he goes through whatever the 7th century equivalent of RCIA is. And to me, that, uh, that demonstrates the king's sincerity. It's not just transactional. Like, this is something he is taking seriously. He wants to learn about the faith before he adopts it. Um, so there's this transactional element at the beginning, which then becomes something transactional plus. Uh, this is when he gets the letter from Pope Boniface that Matthew talked about. Uh, Edwin still doesn't convert, even after he goes through all this process. And, and Bede says that that has to do with his not wanting to accept the humility required by such a conversion. And so his final conversion doesn't take place until he's in exile among the Angles. And once again, he's in danger of being murdered. And this time he has a vision in which a man tells him that God promises him not just salvation, but to make him the greatest king in Northumbrian history, and also to give him the wisest guidance a man can get. And then that guy vanishes, and Edwin realizes he's been talking to an angel this whole time. And that's when he converts. So... As you say, there is a transactional quality in all of that. But then I think most of us do have a transactional relationship with God to some degree, especially early on. God is meeting Edwin where he is. He's working with what Edwin wants. He's working with Edwin's understanding of the world. And presumably as Edwin's life goes on, he learns greater sincerity and moves into a purer faith. 
And we need not blame him for not having 100% pure motives in the beginning. And I, I think the Catholic emphasis on the sacraments is important here. It's not that sincerity isn't necessary, but the sacraments are real and they really impart grace to people. And they help us to become more sincere and faithful rather than requiring 100% sincerity and faithfulness from us at the very beginning. Does that um, does that convince you, David? I think that I mean I'm I'm already wanting to be convinced. So so there's that. Um, but yeah, no, I I I think that you've pointed out um, the the things in the story that that we can we can dig into in order to say this is this is not just some kind of dark ages king signing up with the stronger warrior god because it helps him conquer more um there are definitely elements of this that let us uh, that that bead presents as miracles right like he gets he gets stabbed through a guy with a poison dagger and yet he lives um his life, you know, that there is this time in his life when he is um, dethroned and pursued by enemies, and he has this visitation, which, you know, Paulinus plays on that years later. You know, Paulinus seems to know this about this this experience that he'd had, and and alludes to it, and so that it it becomes, um, you know, so, something that that he explains to Edwin. It's very as, Nebuchadnezzarian, isn't it? I mean, yes, exactly. Um, Bede seems to be, you know, expecting that God would be working in in the life of Edwin in in the sorts of ways that he sees God working with kings, um, especially in the Old Testament, um, and even that that I, it, it's hard not to see in the Paulinus's. Uh, assertions that God will lead Edwin to victory um, or this mysterious figure that Edwin meets who, who says, will, will you convert um, if God gives you victory, not only in this life, but more importantly in the life to come. Um, it's kind of hard not to see the sort of Constantinian conquer in this sign story. Um, so that, you know, the, I guess it's 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 the sort of story that would have been would have been seen as as plausible, likely, probable, not unfamiliar, not not something that would that would be immediately rejected in its own time. Sure, but I mean I I think asking for a pietist style conversion from Edwin, you know, he goes down front at the altar call. And I know you're not really doing that, David, but, right. but I, I think, I think in the 21st century, that tends to be our model for what conversion looks like. And, yeah. you know, the, the, the truth is from, from the time of the new Testament on people have lots of reasons for conversion. Um, people get baptized when their relatives get baptized without any kind of um, discussion of what they believe. There, there's just lots of other models for how conversion works than the, the Billy Sunday uh, form that I grew up with anyway. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's no sawdust trail in, for Edwin though. Um, I do appreciate the way that uh, he, uh, whether it's he's insisting on it or Paulinus is insisting on it. In either case, uh, Bede makes it very clear that he has thorough catechesis. Yeah. 
puts him ahead of a lot of uh, converts today, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, and he also, I mean, we can't forget that he also got this letter from Boniface that's basically presenting a kind of a pressy of everything that the Old New Testaments and the Church Fathers would have said um, about the religion of his ancestors. You know, there's there's some intellectual content here. It's not just, I want a bigger warrior god. It's really very similar to Justin Bieber's conversion. You're going to have to say more about uh, that. I'm, I'm just talking. I'm just, okay. just being silly. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> but I think it's also, even if there are questions sometimes about the motivation of the initial um, conversion, not only of Edwin, but of Northumbria in general, I mean, it's not like everything is smooth sailing afterwards for them. Um, Edwin eventually and his army are killed and routed and... And uh, even Paulinus will eventually leave Northumbria to go back to, to Kent. But they don't leave the, the Christians there alone. They leave uh, the deacon James, who would eventually become sainted. Um, and he continues to baptize and, and I think it says later in the book, snatch much prey from the clutches of the old enemy, the devil. He continues to teach and preach and baptize, and people are still coming, um, despite uh, the loss of their king. These this must have mattered to them, um, considering the persecution they withstand later. Um, not in the story we're looking at today, but later. Yeah, because later there would be uh, there there would arise others who who were not favorable to Christianity in power. Um, but the fact that the that the Christianity stayed in Northumbria um, even after it was no longer adjacent to power. Um, that tells you something. Well, the King's Conference with his royal advisors is one of the best known, story, known stories from Bede's history. It's uh, right up there with Cadman's hymn. So, Matthew, what arguments do these pagan barbarians make for considering Christianity? And does throwing a spear at a pagan temple count as fruits of genuine conversion? <laughs> well, there, there are two basic arguments that the Northumbrians are making for considering Christianity. The first is the powerlessness of the old gods. And second, uh, the that Christianity claims to answer questions the old religion cannot. Um, so the first argument is made by Koifi, who's high priest of the temple there. Um, as priest of these gods, he he says, well, as one who's been more faithful to them than anyone else, um, one would expect that he would have received greater temporal blessings than his companions. But he hasn't. The king favors other people more than him and, and so forth. It seems then, he says, that these gods that he's worshipping, spending all this time worshipping, might not exist. Or if they do, then they don't have power to show favor to those who worship them. So the question becomes, why worship them at all? I think this ties back actually to Boniface's letter where he's asking how whether the idols have power to help you and saying they don't. Um, but during this discussion, a second counselor then stands up and he uh, he gives us the famous analogy of the sparrow. Life, he says, is like the swift flight of a sparrow uh, through a banqueting hall on a winter's day. Inside the hall, there's warmth and light from the fire. But outside, there's only the storms of winter rain and snow raging. 
Um, so the sparrow flies in one door and then out the other. While inside, he enjoys a brief respite from the storm, but all too soon he is lost uh, again from sight as he flies back out into the storm. In the same way, the counselor says, we come into this world and we experience a brief moment of light and comfort, but what lies outside the hall of life on either side, uh, what exists out in the cold of the winter storm, we don't know. So this counselor says, if the Christians can tell us what happens before and after this life, if they can tell us, in other words, where the sparrow goes, then we should listen to them. When we unpack these arguments, I think we notice initially that neither has actually said they believe Christianity is necessarily true. Instead, they're arguing it's prudent to be Christian since it offers things, um, answers to the questions of life, uh, the possibility of eternal happiness, uh, which the old religion does not offer. In that sense, it kind of does remind me a little bit of Pascal's wager, uh, where he basically argued uh, that it was more rational to believe in God than to not believe in him. Because if you believe in God and he exists, you gain heaven. If you believe in him and he doesn't exist, well, then you lose nothing. But if God does exist and you don't believe in him, then you lose everything. You lose out on heaven. Um, so Pascal kind of argued it was smart to hedge your bets and just believe in God. In a way, the Northumbrians are saying something similar. Their old religion doesn't offer them hope for a blessed afterlife, but since Christianity at least claims to be able to offer this, it's prudent to be Christian. After all, if the Christians are right, you get heaven. If they're not right, and you end up like a bird lost in the winter darkness, well, that's what they were already expecting. They don't lose anything by becoming Christian, but they might gain heaven. I think it's fair to say most Christians today might have some trouble understanding this kind of reasoning and, and comparing it to our understanding of saving faith. But I think there are, are hints here that there's more than going on than just a hedging of bets. Um, if they were just hedging their bets, we would see more of an inclination towards syncretism. Um, and in fact, we do know that uh, King Redwald of East Anglia uh, had dabbled in a syncretistic kind of, of way of yeah. approaching Christianity. He he tried to serve both Christ and the ancient gods, Beatrice. Um And he says explicitly that he kept a shrine to Christ, and right beside it he had an altar where victims were sacrificed to devils, which is a, a remarkable juxtaposition. But we don't see that in this discussion here with Edwin and with Northumbria. Um, the high priest Coifi says instead that if Christianity can offer these truths, which are absent from the old religion, as well as offering the blessing of life, salvation, and eternal happiness, uh, then they should go for it. Um, so he calls for a rejection of the old ways, and he even leads the charge to tear down the pagan temple. He rides up first, and as you said, he throws a spear into the temple he formerly led, and he has the shrine burned down, the idols destroyed, the altars desecrated. I think that what the high priest is doing here certainly um, looks like a turning point in his life. And if repentance means to turn around, then I think you could read it very easily as a form of repentance. I think, however complicated the motives of everyone might be here, um, Coifi is, is at least putting into action uh, literally what St. Paul and St. Bar Barnabas were calling for it, uh, earlier. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. And he's, he's turning away. He's He's destroying the past that they had worshipped. Yes. 
Um, and I think even just the the idea that he goes and he throws the spear himself with his own hand is significant because in Boniface's letter, he was talking about how people worshipped things that they made with their own hands. And so for Coifi to destroy the the uh, the altars that he himself had dedicated um, to to desecrate the temple, he's he's showing that what he's built up with his own hands, he's tearing down. I think there's a symbolism there that's perhaps intentionally tying into Boniface's letter. So I guess I, d I don't doubt that the faith of the Northumbrians and the conversion might be complicated, as we've said. Um, but the motivation to turn to Christ, um, however confused it might be, I think is still real. Uh, more instruction, yes, is needed. But I take Jesus at his word that he doesn't, you know, break a, a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. So, yeah. You know, he's also putting into action what Boniface literally challenged Edwin to do, which is to break the idols and see if they fight back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, the role of royal advisors here is is an important one. Um, the royal advisors in a king's court in this culture were very important. They would be consulted on um, any kind of... Uh, state decision, something that affects uh, the kingdom as a whole. Um, they could uh, they could also function uh, in some cases as, as, as diplomats. Um, when a king died, uh, a king might designate uh, someone as their as an heir, um, uh, a son, but not necessarily. It might also be a brother or a cousin. Um, but it's up to the the, the royal advisors to confirm that choice. So when uh, when Edwin says I'm not going to I'm not going to settle this question until I have the approval of this body um, uh, that that's the that's what's at stake. Um, yeah. What what did what did you think of these stories Michael? Did you know them before before today the reading for today's episode? No, I had never I'd never heard of them. Okay. I, I found I found them very interesting. I mean, um, I, I my experience with Saint Bede has been very limited um, before this. Uh, this made me want to actually read my copy of the Ecclesiastical History, which I've owned for several years and I've never opened. Well, um, I, I recommend it. Um, I love the story of uh, that unnamed counselor uh, talking about uh, the the bird flying through the hall. Um, I just think it, it's just very beautifully expressed. It really is. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it kind of it kind of gives you a different side on if, if you if you sort of got the impression that this whole culture that we're talking about is a bunch of big Viking guys going yar and like you know throwing their mugs down on the ground to shatter them when they're done and saying another um, the, the, there's a different side of it that uh, I think is worth worth considering. Well, in the last movement of this story. Uh, Quote, King Edmund, therefore, with all the nobility of the nation and a large number of the common sort, received the faith and the washing of holy regeneration. Unquote. Uh, one of the things that often is said about these early medieval mass conversions is that kings just 
rounded up their followers and forced them to get baptized. Uh, and n not that that never happened, but after reading this account, uh, do you think that that conventional wisdom or that stereotype applies here? Or do you see other evidence of responses to a declaration of the gospel? Michael? It is true that Bede does not say that they considered the matter, went through RCIA, and then were baptized. But uh, it also doesn't say they didn't do that. Uh, and later we learn that Paulinus kept preaching in Northumbria and that many more people, quote, as many as were predestined, also accepted the faith. And that suggests to me that at least some people are considering it. They're not being forced to, that they're responding to what Paulinus says. And as far as we know, that could be happening um, with this initial mass conversion as well. I don't know. I, I do wonder two things about medieval Christianity that you are probably better able to answer than I am. So I'm going to ask them to you. Uh, number one, was the society hierarchical enough that the king's conversion would have been enough to make the common people accept that Christianity was true? Um, so it, mm, it depends from context, from context to context. Um, in some cases, it seems like pretty clearly a royal power move. Um, I'm a Christian now and I'm ordering you all to also be Christians. Um, in other cases, it was something almost more like a, uh, a, a traditional, um, sort of, sort of like the compromise that came about in Germany in the reformation that the faith of your elector is the faith of uh -huh. the, of that, that particular principality. Um, the idea mm -hmm. that, well, he's our leader and we follow the leader. Um, and so in that case, it's not so much a, a, a command, a forcing, as it is everyone's default assumption. Well, I guess this is what we're doing now. Right. And then that, although, that's what I wonder. Yeah. Although even in, in the Reformation era, like once they get the he who rules his religion uh, principle, there was a stipulation that Catholics could leave Lutheran lands and Lutherans could leave Catholic lands. Although if you're... <laughs> You know, a poor person, how easy is that going to be to do? Not super. At least they didn't kill him, except when they did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's number yeah, one. Uh, number <laughs> number two, would they have seen a huge difference between baptizing an infant and baptizing people who didn't understand or fully accept Christianity? So that's a real... That's a, that's a really good question. One of the things that I'm encouraged when I read Bede, there is this reference. Um, I'm looking at uh, chapter 14 here, uh, and it's talking about Edwin is baptized at York on Easter. Very traditional, all right. So Easter baptism um, in the church of Saint Peter the Apostle, which he himself had built of timber there in haste, whilst he was a catechumen receiving instruction in order to be admitted to baptism. So you see that there's still enough of that that old form that we see in the fathers of adult converts needing to be catechized before they would be admitted to baptism. Okay. Um, so that there's there's at least language there that reminds me of the of that of that older form that we see in, in the earlier um, the earlier fathers. And then, and then later in the passage, um, 
it mentions uh, uh, Paulinus was coming with the king and queen to their township, stayed there fully occupied in catechizing and baptizing, during which days from morning till night he did nothing else but instruct the people resorting from villages and places in Christ's saving word, and when they were instructed, he washed them with the water of absolution in the river Glen. So again, Bede is still Bede is pretty consistent in this particular passage in saying there was instruction, there was at least some level of catechesis before the baptism. So uh, that that to me is something different from what uh, does seem to have happened in at least um, I think in Norway. Uh, the story is uh, the um, the king converts and basically just marches the peasantry through a river and calls it good. Huh. Um, you know, may, maybe that circumstance. <laughs> maybe that circumstance. You know, baptism is the one sacrament that anybody can do. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you know, e- e- even then, there's still. <laughs> yeah, I think at least one side of that right ought to be meaning it seriously for it to work, right? I, I would, I would think so. <laughs> I don't know if people know that though. The Catholic Church allows anybody to baptize anybody. You just have to say, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I baptize you, and it's done. Well, that's why I mean, Roman Catholics can. Uh, recognize the the baptism of of non-catholics as well correct it's 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 a it's a valid baptism even if the person who does it is not themselves a christian this is a plot point in uh walker percy's the last gentleman Hmm. i think um we're kind of talking a little bit about the the development of the catechumenate i mean yes historically uh in places where the church has been long established, the catechumenate extends to become this long process. But I wonder whether the the responsibilities of a catechumenizing process were different or considered differently in a mission context like Anglo-Saxon England, where there isn't really an established church. So, I mean, I don't know. And I, I kind of, I mean, we, we've already mentioned as well that... Uh, the decision here, I mean, yes, all of the nobility of the nation is getting baptized, it says, but this was a decision taken together by the nobility of the nation, this council, in a lot of ways. So I wonder if this is just perhaps symptomatic as well of a of a, of a more corporate understanding of faith that might have been present in this time and place. Even when we read scripture, we have this tendency to read all the yous as if they were individual yous to just one person, but often they're plural use. So he's talking about a group of people believing or or responding. Or even, I mean, we can get right down to it, the baptism of whole households in scripture after, you know, the jailer converts to Christianity. Well, there are parallels here, I think, to some extent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's helpful. I mean, I I think it is... I, I don't look at this and say and see it as, you know, 
just a bunch of people got rounded up and dunked and 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 yay we're all christian now like there seems to be more more to this though i have seen this cited in you know uh, along with other stories that are um more clearly uh of that sort i have mm-hmm. seen this cited along with them but I, it it just doesn't feel fair I think even even if we look at just kind of the the description of Paulinus's preaching over the next six years, I mean it it talks about him going around and doing this for six years, and as many as were predestined to eternal life believed and were baptized. I mean that implies that some did not believe and were not baptized. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. I hadn't I hadn't really flipped that phrase. To get that implication, but but yeah, that makes that makes sense. It might also be that I'm reading a different translation. I'm not sure, but <laughs> <laughs> possibly. Well, those were the those were the moments that I really wanted to talk through most carefully. But is there anything else that you gentlemen would like to highlight from this foray into early medieval missionary work, Matthew? Um. I might say if if people have found this interesting, go ahead and, and read through more Bede. It's it is it's an interesting book. But um, if you're interested, kind of in how the uh, the Anglo Saxons here or the Northumbrians specifically convert and how they tear down their temple, it might be fun to to read also uh, an account of um, Saint Boniface in Germany when they uh, when he's at Donar's Oak or Thor's Oak or or Joe's mm-hmm. Oak or whatever they want to call it. Um, and how they have this sacred oak and how it gets cut down and they build a church out of it. I mean, it's it's a fun parallelism to look at what medieval missionary work looks like, if it's a true story. Mm-hmm. Michael? Oh. Sorry, you can, you can continue. No, I was just going to say, as in that, uh, I'm happy to pass it back to Michael. I got two things. Number one, everybody involved in this story is a saint now. Saint Bede, Saint Edwin, Saint Ethelberta. Everybody except poor uh, Pope Boniface V, who is not a saint. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that's a statement about his eternal destiny or anything like that. He just hasn't been officially sainted, as far as I can tell. I just, I think that's interesting. Uh, saint Edwin, by the way, his uh, icon features him holding up the church that he built to heaven. Mm. So. Uh, the other thing I'd point out is that everyone involved seems to understand and accept that conversion is simultaneously a process and something that takes place through external material sacraments. It's neither a matter wholly of sincere belief, nor is it matter, nor is it something that just happens to you, uh, which seems right to me. So I, uh, I appreciated the uh, the chance to think that out in reading the uh, in reading the story. Cool. I, I imagine Coifey's probably not a saint either. No, probably not. Oh, Paulinus is too. I, I forgot to mention that. Yeah, yeah. Mo- most of those, um, most of that, the, the first gen um, Roman missionaries to to England um, were very early on venerated by that next generation of of Anglo-Saxon Christians. Thanks, I'm sure, in part to uh, to Saint Bede. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Saint Bede, who. Uh, dear listener, was himself a uh, Northumbrian, so this particular story was one um, that would have been of a special 
a special importance to to him and his own faith. Um, he's he's telling the story of his own region of England coming to uh, coming to faith. So so yeah. Well, that's all the all the bead we've got time for today. What are we going to be doing next week? Well, it's our yearly episode on Christian rock, and this year we're going to be talking about the self-titled 1997 record by Sixpence, None the Richer. And yes, this is the album with Kiss Me on it, although it has a lot of other songs um, as well. So that's what we're talking about. Well, all right. Um, I guess I'm going to finally, finally catch up to the songs that I wasn't allowed to listen to in youth group. You were not allowed to listen to the song Kiss Me by Sixpence None the Richer? Um in general, any any kind of any kind of Christian rock, pop, contemporary, none of that. Wow. None of that Because that's a yeah. that's a pretty uh pretty safe song I would say. Not a lot of not a lot of bite to it. <laughs> The album, well, the album's know. got a lot uh, edgier stuff than than that that song. Let me put it that way. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, dear listener, if you have any questions or comments about this particular episode, um, we'd love to have those. And you can post them in the comments to the show notes for this episode on our blog, ChristianHumanist.org. You can also email them uh, to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, and so you can post them there or send uh, private messages through that. Also, um, now that Lint is over, um, the uh, Kel Bummer is back on Twitter um, and the real Grubsy, well, he never left. So uh, you can tweet us there. Also, uh, CH Radio Network is the network. Matthew Twitter is also handle. on Twitter, I believe. Yeah. Are you just Matthew Block? Is that right? I think I'm Matthew A. Block. Matthew A. Block. One, okay. one T in Matthew. Yes, that's a good point. <laughs> yes. As someone yes, whose yes. ridiculous name is spelled wrong, I, uh, I can appreciate it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's all we have time for. Uh, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our editor currently is Michael Farmer. And I'm going to wish you all grand weeks. And on behalf of Michael Farmer and Matthew Block, say, let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger. <laughs>